For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. This is, it's an 18 now. That's, that's pretty tractor. It's a pretty tractor. Yeah, I didn't know the 18 is the same size as the 16. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the machine's the same size. Right. Dimensionally. But, yeah, dimensionally. More horsepower. Yeah, just more, yeah, to drag a bigger, bigger uh, board across the ground. Mm-hmm. But then, and then you put all the bullshit mining stuff on it, and then it looks really beefy. Yeah, I would actually like to see one that's. I've not seen one in person. They just, look, just pictures. They look sick. Yeah. They look sick. It's probably my favorite blade when it's all mining specked out and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got my 797 right here. Yeah, mine's sitting on my desk as well. I've got a uh, 994 sitting over top of it. Oh, that's cool. Over I mean, 797? Yeah. It doesn't really match it, but that's the biggest loader I've got. Yeah. Yeah. I looked into getting one of the B Cyrus rope shovels. Yeah. But they're like, they're like three grand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not there yet. I don't have that kind of money right now, but, but I really want one. <laughs> I just showed you my, my newest toys, uh, the 775G and the mm. 88 perfect patch max, but it's sitting next to the 797. So they're, I got the 797 sitting at an angle and 994 over it, which not a good pass match, but then the 775 right next to it What's with a, the 88 over it. 775, 70-ton? Mm-hmm. 70-ton truck yeah. versus a 400-ton truck. Right next to the 400. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a difference. Kind of shows the size of what it is. Yeah. Well, Mr. J. Cobb, welcome to Dirt Talk. Um, we're really happy to have you today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Been yeah. looking forward to this for quite a while. You've been listening to Dirt Talk for quite a while, haven't you? Since episode one. Really? Yeah, man. I remember you I, called me. I, I don't think I caught episode one, like, but a couple months after you started. But Well, yeah, yeah. You called me when you, you found it, and mm-hmm. I think you're on, like, a road trip or something like that. I was. And you called me up. You're like, this is pretty good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you answered the phone, actually. Oh, yeah. I'm not that busy. So we can get into what the heck you're doing right now in a sec. But you started out in middle of nowhere, Arizona. I did. Yeah, so born and raised southeast Arizona, about 70 miles from Tucson, a little mm-hmm. town called Wilcox. Yeah, it's a farming community. Not a whole lot going on there. Uh, it's starting to grow a little bit now, but, uh, you know, growing up there was you either farmed or you ranched or, or that's it. Yeah. So not a whole lot of other industries in that area at all. Um, and then uh, kind of moved out. Uh, when I was, when I graduated high school, I went out and continued to be a cowboy. I thought I wanted to live that life and, and then, uh, realized that if I want to make any money in life, I needed to change directions. And, you know, I, uh, I'd been running machines for my grandfather on his place since I was a young kid and I hate a ranch. He did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I don't even know how big it was. I know at one point in time they had 15 sections of deeded land then there was state lease and blm all yeah it was it was fairly large but yeah it's also really rough country it was lots of mountains and uh you know it was it was like 100 acres per cow it wasn't like mm-hmm. so i mean you had to have a lot of volume of land to to graze cattle so it uh you had to have a lot of property just to 
have a decent amount to to make a living. I feel like when I tell people I'm from Arizona, they think of it's like this Western, like there's just Western shootouts going on while you're on your way to the grocery store. And I, um, that is the part of Arizona that is pretty Western. Yes. So you grow up Arizona, you're running equipment on your grandpa's place. Mm -hmm. You try to be a cowboy. Then you end up a caterpillar. Yeah. Uh, so well, you, you went to a construction company first. I was working construction. Yeah. So doing the cowboy thing, I ended up all the way in Florida. I mean, I, two weeks after I graduated, Florida. I was in Oklahoma working for a guy, cowboy, and then ended up in Florida. There's there's a lot of cows in Florida. Most people don't realize it, but uh, the largest cow-calf operation in the United States is actually in Florida. You know, I, um, I, I, I wouldn't know that if I haven't spent so much time in Central Florida. But you drive through Central Florida, it's all ranches and horse mm -hmm. farms. The horse farms there. They're oh, immaculate. The Ocala area. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts how much money and these these farms are crazy. Yeah. What's so, up? Like, this this place was it it went up to St. Cloud. Yeah. And went to Melbourne and all the way up to Cocoa Beach. Whoa. So there's three hundred and sixty thousand acres there. If you look on the map, there's nothing built. And that's because it's this ranch. Whoa. Otherwise it would be all the way to the coast. Mm -hmm. What uh, what do you do as a cowboy? I was taking care of cows, building fence and feeding, doctoring and vaccinating calves. All, all you know, just taking care of them so they're yeah they grow up healthy and so we could all eat. You'd think you'd think it'd be easy to keep cows in a in an area, but it's a it's a pain in the ass. They get through fences all the uh, time. If they want to if they want to go through a fence, they're and they figure out that they can just stick their head through it and go, they're gone. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent summers in Montana and there would, there was a place just across the street that we knew the guy that, that owned it. And he would, he, it wasn't, it wasn't a big operation. He had, he had like 1500 really nice acres and he had a pasture all the way through it. It was in this Valley, just beautiful grass. So he would have cattle graze on his land to keep the grass down in the summer months and and he would just lease the land it wouldn't be his cows but the cows would get out all the damn time so you'd get a call you know he'd leave for a few weeks and then it was us kids in charge of making sure the cows were kept in and you'd get a call that the cows were just walking down the the highway and you have to go wrangle them up and it'll mm -hmm. be like you know five in the morning you're you're running around <laughs> trying to chase cows around on the on a highway and you're it is dark 11 years old it's mm -hmm. dark you're on a four-wheeler you don't know what the hell you're doing you're, you're beeping at the cows trying to trying to wrangle them up and one cow's going this way one cow's going that way and it's just total pandemonium <laughs> <laughs> i know the feeling i've done that a time or ten it's so dumb <laughs> um so you you get tired of the cow thing pretty quick you go to work construction yeah, so uh, I actually moved back to Arizona. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you why I did, but went back to to the valley, to uh, the Phoenix Valley, and uh, got a job with a construction company that uh, they they specialized in hard rock excavations. And mm. uh, went up to the Sedona area, spent probably a year and a half in Sedona, putting in a lot of a lot of mainline utilities for some some subdivisions coming in. Because uh, you, you know the area, the yeah. 89A Highway. There, we mm -hmm. were we were right next to that for a year. Sure. And I mean, when I say hard rock, it was if we did 150 foot a day, that was a good day. Mm. Uh, and then <clears throat> some other jobs in in the uh, in the valley there, um, just doing a lot of utility work type work, uh, pipe. Storm drain, a lot of a lot of that type of work, and then ended up down in Tucson. I, I chased I chased jobs pretty hard there. I lived out of out of a fifth wheel and was pretty mobile, you know, kind of the transient construction worker type mm -hmm. at that point in time in my life. And and uh, um, shoot, I thought I wanted to go to college because I'd I'd work my way up into a managerial position in uh, in a company, and then. I was just tired of having to re-engineer jobs, right? It seemed like every job we went to, I was, I was having to work with the grade checkers, and we were having to completely re-engineer a piece. And I was gonna, I was gonna change the engineering world. So I started Why? college, and I figured out I couldn't pass all their math, and so that didn't happen. What do you mean by re-engineer? Why do you have to do that, or did that? Well, it seemed like uh, 
you know, they weren't going to the job sites and looking. The engineers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there would be a, um, the cut field balance wouldn't work out or mm. the vertical realignments on a job just, it just, it just would not fit to the profile of the ground, what was on there. And so you look at a job site and it would say you had a, a seven foot cut and then there a, a 10 foot fill. Well, just do the math. That doesn't work. You, you know, it, it, you can't balance a seven foot cut and a 10 foot fill. It just doesn't work. And so you'd have to start robbing Peter to pay Paul to make the, the job balance. And then they come back and wonder why this elevation 300 foot away was two and a half foot lower. And well, it's because mm -hmm. we had to. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, where'd you go to, where'd you go to school? Central Arizona college. Nice. Yeah. Central Arizona college. Okay. Little, little piece of heaven right in the middle of the Indian reservation. Why did you, why'd you try college? You know, I'd, I, I, like I was starting to say, I, I wanted to try to fix the engineering world. Uh, that was mm -hmm. my intention. But then, like I said, the math hit and I was like, yeah, I can't do this math. It's okay. So you uh, saw the issues in the, in the field, like maybe I can uh, do yeah. something about this yeah, and I can be yeah. on the other side. I could be a good guy on the right. inside. Right. Yeah. Um, engineering school sucks. I didn't even get to that point. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, just the college algebra was what kicked my ass. It takes, it takes two years of prerequisite math classes to get to any kind of actual design courses. Yeah. And even your design courses are still probably senior year. And up until then, it's just straight, just nonsense math. Now, mind you, I was 22 as well. So it wasn't like uh, it was right out of high school. It was several years from doing any kind of classwork or book work yeah. to, to get to that point. And then I was just too far removed to, to do it. And I was working full time plus carrying 17, 18 credit hours. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot So, So how do you come about Caterpillar? Went back to construction. Um, I met my wife, uh, when I was in college, I was, I was also college rodeoing. So I was riding saddle bronx and team roping and, uh, met my wife at a rodeo. She was working the beer garden and I got bucked <laughs> off a horse and I proceeded to get drunk. <laughs> So, so uh, that's how I met my wife. Um, and, uh, you know, things happened and my son was on the way. And so I settled, I, I decided to quit college. I didn't, uh, I didn't even finish the, my associate's degree. Uh, I was probably six credit hours shy of it and decided we need to get married and I need to go back to work. And so found a construction job and was, uh, was working. And one of the guys that uh, that I was working with, he got a job with Caterpillar at the Proven Grounds, and he and I were pretty good to be friends. He lived half a mile down the road from me, and uh, he said, "You need to apply out here. You need to you need to get this job." And mm -hmm. so, I applied, and and uh, they liked what they saw, and brought me in as a test operator. So I worked there at the Proven Grounds for for quite a while, where I got to see a lot of prototype equipment. Uh, I mean, this is back when we were doing the C to the D series excavators and it's like that, tells you how far back ago it was. Was that out in Buckeye or Tucson? It was Tucson. So it was yeah. Tucson. It, it had moved a couple of years prior from Buckeye from APG yeah. down to Tucson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down TPG. Um, exp explain what a test operator does. So you take um, the engineer's prototype idea and you beat the hell out of it. Uh, there's a, there's a preset things, uh, that he wants you to do, um, depends on what it was for. So for example, uh, I was working on the brakes for the 797 B so 400 ton truck, yeah. you know, and so, uh, to do the brake test, there was a, a hill in the mountainside of the, the spoil pile from the Sarita uh, mine. Mm -hmm. It was a mile long, 10% grade. So we called it the Sarita 10. And to do these brake checks, she would go up and down the hill, empty half loads, three quarter loads, full loads, and then 120% overloaded, right? Mm -hmm. Which is outside the spec of what Caterpillar wants or any manufacturer wants you to, to do. And then you have to come down the hill, make sure it stopped. It's kind of scary. Did it always it, stop? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, as they do that, they have the ability to uh, take away the other brake components. So 
what most people don't realize, there's actually four brakes inside of a haul truck when you get up into those bigger rigid frames. Mm -hmm. So you have your service brake pedal, which is on the floor. You've got a retarder, you've got the park brake, but then there's a secondary brake. And they can individualize each one of those. They can they can separate where, you know, if you're touching the brake, this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen. Well, I had one instance where uh, we were coming down off of there and we're supposed to maintain a, a six mile per hour speed limit or whatever. That's what the engineer wanted. He's sitting in the buddy's seat, you know, watching his computer. The machine's all instrumented up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we get about a quarter of the way down the hill, and I just looked over at him and just said, you need to put your computer away and make sure your seatbelt is tight. And he, he looked over, he just said, why? I said, because we're done. The brakes are fried. Well, what? 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 You know, he's like, what? What do you, what do you mean? He was like, the brakes are done. We, we are free rolling right now. 3.3 million pounds going down a 10% grade. Nice. No control. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was nerve wracking. So at the bottom of the hill, there's a 25% super elevated curve that goes back around and puts you back uphill. Mm. And that's how it got stopped. Damn. Yeah. It's brakes are important in a car, but they're really important when you're hauling 400 <laughs> tons of stuff because yeah. that is a lot of weight that you yeah. have to stop. Like I said, we were 3.3 million pounds. Yeah. So. It took everything I had to turn that truck. You know, the outside wheel was up on the bank, on the berm, and on the other side of that's about a two hundred foot drop. So I mean, it was it was nerve wracking. Yeah, it took me an hour and a half to get down after we stopped Jeez. to stop to when I when we stopped and then I started shaking. Yeah, it took me an hour and a half to get off the truck at that point. That's pretty wild. Yeah. How long did you uh, work at TPG for? Uh just just shy of two years. I was there for I was there for quite a while. Uh, and what happened was we were doing that, uh, C to D model change with the excavators and actually had a group of, of CDIs, the, uh, from around the country, the certified dealer instructors, mm-hmm. they came in to run the C's right next to the D. So we had a 330 C and a 330 D and the 320 and the 320. So they were doing comparison side to side. And there was 10 of those guys and one of me, uh, I just got lucky to be assigned that job on that Monday morning and I had a little bitty D5G uh, dozer and I had to keep up with 10 guys digging constantly all nice. day for four and a half days. Nice. Well, at the end of that, uh, Kelly Protz, who's a, a certified operator for uh, Wagner Equipment Company, he uh, he just pulled me aside and said, hey, I think you could do what we do. Would you like to? I'm like, I don't even know what it is you do, but yes. Hmm. Because if you're doing this stuff, I want all, I'm all in on it. And uh, I got a phone call that afternoon from the sales manager on the eastern side, uh, eastern slope for Colorado. And two days later, I was on an airplane and interviewed there. And then two weeks later was spring training. And so I went from TPG to Tanaha. I spent the next two weeks at Tanaha. And then we moved to Wagner, up to Denver. Being a test operator sounds super cool. But I've heard it is it gets it super monotonous. Well, and it hurts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, take everything you know about how we operate machines and you push the limit for eight to 12 hours mm-hmm. every day because it's you are literally trying to find the holes. You're, you, you're running machines through obstacle courses that the machine's not supposed to go through, but we're trying to find the breaking point. You know, mm-hmm. how far can the metal bend before it breaks? Uh, because all the metal's going to bend. Yeah. And, and so it it's it is very monotonous because you get on a uh like the K series dozers when they when they came out we were going from the G's to the K's and you had this set parameter you had to do you had to do uh x amount of hours every day of slot dozing mm-hmm. and then V ditching well you know you you push with a with a D5 and a slot doze for about an hour and you're done right it's like okay I'm moving no dirt I'm not having any fun yeah and I'm getting nowhere with this little puny dozer doing something it's not supposed to be doing. But that was part of that task. And you had to do it every day, day in, day out, day in, day out to, to get that, uh, that feedback back to the engineering groups. So, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, you don't even have the satisfaction of building something. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you just push the dirt one direction and then you go and turn, the dirt the next turn around direction. and put it right back. Yeah. Because yeah. everything you did had to be cleaned up at the end of the shift so the next guy could do the exact same thing. Mm. You know, so he had a clean field to work with. So you go, you go to Colorado, become a CDI. What is a CDI? CDI is a certified dealer instructor, which means you've gone through and received formal training on how to be a trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get some specialized training in application. Uh, so to be, be to get the certification as a CDI means you can physically run the machine and you can run it within, uh, let's just say, uh, oh, a large wheel loader, for example. You You have to be able to to knock trucks out in in have a thirty to thirty five second cycle time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you don't, you can you won't be certified. Uh, you can still be an instructor. It's just not the certified part. Sure. And so there's a there's a very high standard uh, to have that uh, that terminology. And and there's a lot of dealers that don't have CDIs because they can't meet that. And so those guys are just demo operators. So. Mm-hmm. A demo operator and a CDI will do the same type of job for the dealer, uh, but the the CDI is someone that can actually go out and train. They can teach proper applications and teach uh, how to get the most out of your machines. And at a big dealer, you only have a few CDIs. There's not many of these guys. No, no, there's not many at all. So uh, when I was at Wagner, we had uh, myself and Kelly Protz Mm. and then uh, Louis... I can't think of Louis' last name. He was down in New Mexico. He covered the whole state. Mm-hmm. And then Kelly and I worked uh, Colorado, and I was on the eastern, what do they call the eastern slope, and then he was anything with mountains. But that overlapped quite a bit. I would go up into, uh, I'd get as far in as Breckenridge sometimes and uh, whatnot. But then when I moved to Holt, it was me. Uh, there was no other uh, CDI there. And so <clears throat> I had the whole... Holt territory, which is like 216 counties. It was massive. Damn. Yeah. What's uh what's a day of a CDI look like? Uh just an average day of a CDI. Oh shoot. It it really depends. It could be could be three or four machine deliveries, uh, where you're going out to a customer that bought some machines to uh walk through it with them, make sure they understand the bu- the bells and whistles and switches. Mm-hmm. Uh and you could have, like I said, two or three, maybe up to five deliveries in one day because you're covering so many so much ground uh or it could be doing physical one-on-one training with uh with operators on their site to to help them gain that uh that skill set and knowledge on how to get the most out of their machines it's i had that set up with thompson when i got my skids here and then two days before it was supposed to happen i had my little whoopsie yeah. So I never got that. Uh, I couldn't tell you what a majority of the switches in the machine do. I know how to turn the lights on because that's the little button with the little <laughs> lights on it. I know how to take a bucket off, on and off. Yeah. That's pretty slick. It, it is. took me a little bit to figure that one out. Otherwise, have no idea. I had to text someone. Someone accidentally, so I sent it to Thompson. It came back. The damn seat heater was on. Oh, it's miserable. It's that thing's mis- hot. And I knew it was on, but then I'd look up at all the buttons. I'm like, son of a bitch. Does this thing even have a seat heater? Am I imagining this? Or because this is so uncomfortable. I text someone, they're like, look under the seat. Yeah. Oh, of course the button for the seat heater is under the seat, not where all the other buttons right, are. Right. It's just, damn it. I, I I didn't have someone teach me this. And then every time I grease the machine, I find two new grease points. Yeah. Someone's probably <laughs> never shown you the ones that are that are up your machine's vertical lift, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Well, some of them suck. Some of oh, them yeah. suck. You gotta have it. Lifted and the the hydraulic lock in place to to grease some of this mm-hmm. stuff. It's it's you know some of these engineers need to yeah they need to grease their own machines every once yeah. in a while. Yeah, they need to understand you do this shit by yourself. <laughs> um, so uh, you you go from Wagner. Wagner's a big dealer. Yes, and you go to Holt, which is an even bigger dealer. And in uh, in North America or in the United States, I think they're the biggest in the United States by sales. Yeah, yeah, by volume. Yeah, yeah, they're big time. And I was working in the Metroplex, which is the largest uh, area for machine sales in the world. The DFW. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's more machines sold out of that that territory than anywhere else in the world. What did you enjoy about being a CDI? The travel and the meeting new people and and 
you know, uh, it's crazy how many people live in the same spot for all their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I probably know more about the state of Texas than three quarters of people that lived in Texas their entire lives because they haven't been outside of three counties. Yeah. And, and I've traveled from the Rio Grande to, to the Red River out to, uh, out to the east side. You know, I've, I've traveled this state pretty extensively. And so you get to see a lot of country. You get to see, you know, the, what's created and what, what's there and, and get to see the different personalities. I mean, uh, when you, when you think of the state of Texas, there's, there should be like five states inside of it. Cause you've got East Texas, Crazy. South Texas, yeah, North Texas, West Texas, and then the panhandle and each region inside of that region has different personalities inside of it too. Mm -hmm. But you can't, uh, you can't go to East Texas and, and you, you can't conduct yourself the same way as you would in South Texas. It's just, no, they, they, you just can't. Well, you even know, drive, so. you just go, you drive, uh, I 20, I think it is. So you go Longview, Dallas, Odessa, totally different worlds mm -hmm. in each, in each of those areas. I mean, black and white, yeah. man. It's it, night and day. It, yeah. There is nothing similar <laughs> about Odessa and Dallas. Yeah. And they're not doing the same work and they're no. in the oil. I mean, even if it's old field companies, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're not, they're building pads, but they're not doing the same work. It's no. a completely different way of doing work. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have one way in the oil fields, then you'll have DFW and moisture conditioning and all mm -hmm. that nonsense. And then you'll have coal country and timber and mm -hmm. all kinds of crazy stuff on the eastern side of the state. It's it's yeah. interesting. It is very interesting. And I think that was probably the what I enjoyed the most was that variety. Mm. Uh you know, cuz it you you gain so much knowledge by being able to be a part of so many pieces and and seeing how this company did it versus this company is like, oh, well, they got this and this mm -hmm. company's got this and then you combine the two and it's like, shit, I we can make this work. Yeah, well, that's why build it is where it is because we've done that exact same thing. We can make this work. Shit, that's, this might just happen. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Um, uh, how long did you travel for? Oh, uh, so between uh, between Wagner and Holt, I was uh, uh, a CDI for 12, 13, 13 years, I think. That's a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's a while. Were there downsides to that travel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it caused a divorce. That'll yeah. do it. Yeah, when we moved to Texas, that was, well, let me rephrase. When we moved to Colorado, that was the beginning of the end for, for our relationship. Because, uh, you know, when you're when you're traveling and you don't know how to communicate with your wife, it, uh, it's not a good thing. You sure. know, there's lots of, lots of things happen when you don't communicate effectively with your, with your spouse on, in any regard, but then add all the travel where you leave Sunday night and come home Friday, Friday night. Mm -hmm. It's, you, you gotta, you gotta know how to communicate with each other to, to make it work. And yeah. I didn't know how to, so, you know, we, we failed the first time, but we fixed that problem. Yeah. So you got, uh, you got remarried, mm -hmm. but to same woman, same woman, mm -hmm. your ex-wife. We were, so we were divorced for seven years. And, uh, we re rekindled our relationship It it really gets started by her coming to me and saying, we need to just work on our relationship. And it wasn't that it wasn't like we hated each other when we were divorced. We mm -hmm. still, we still got along. We were copacetic, I guess, but, um, there were just things that came up that we both needed to work on for ourselves. And, and she came to me and asked if we could work on our friendship. And so we did, we started, we started working on the friendship and one thing led to another and led to another. Next thing you know, we're the four of us are going to dinner and the four of us are going to play mini golf with yeah, our you have two kids. I do. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then Christmas morning we were having it together instead of separate, you know, cause it just didn't, you know, why, why not? You know, it just didn't make sense not to. And then it got to the point where uh, I needed to either move forward with her or we had to stop. Mm. Cause the feelings were there, the, uh, all that, all that emotion, all the, all that stuff, you know, cause we didn't do this the first time we didn't date the first time we didn't get to know each other. It was, uh, you know, married in October or met in October, married in May and she was five months pregnant. I mean, it was quick. Damn. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, we, we decided that, uh, we were actually going to start dating. And so we dated and actually dated for a, a full year. 
and then we got married. But when we made that decision to to date, it was that we would get married because mm. neither one of us wanted to go through it. And we didn't want to put our kids through it. And so we knew that that was the end goal. And that's, that's what we really strove. Uh, we were really striving to get to that point. So uh, we made sure that we took it slow and we, you know, we didn't rehash all the past of all the shit we did wrong and didn't do right. It was like, you know, hey, I'm Jay and I'm new and you're Bridget and you're new. And mm -hmm. we started from that point and moved forward instead of trying to rehash the whole past and and come up with the whys, the hows. And, you know, you you, you messed up or I messed up. We we just moved forward. Seven years is a while. Yeah. That's a long, a long time. Yeah. What, uh, what did you do differently on the second time around? Uh, so I think it had to do with the, with the getting to know her part and the dating part and uh, making her my best friend. Hmm. Uh, she's still my best friend. You know, I've, I've actually called her three times today because uh, just stuff going on personally that's, that happened just this morning. And just she's my outlet. Um, everything gets run through her where before that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then we still try to date, you know, I, I still travel a lot. I'm actually traveling more right now than I ever have in my entire life. And we still date, uh, I make it a priority. So, uh, when I get home uh, this evening, it'll actually be too late to go on a date. So tomorrow that's what we're doing. Her and I are going to go have us our time sure. and I make sure I take that time for her because she needs, she needs that time. I need that time. Uh, I need to make sure that she knows that she's my priority. And so uh, that's one of the biggest keys, I think, is, you know, she needs to know that. So I make sure that I give her that time and make sure that she understands what she means to me to be able to do what I'm doing. Because mm -hmm. I couldn't do what I'm doing without her. There's yeah. no way. Yeah. It's it's something that's definitely not talked about enough in the blue car world because there is that nomadic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. People are away from home a lot. No matter if you're in construction or you're a welder, or you're in oil and gas or whatever it is, you're oftentimes home a lot, and a lot of families completely disintegrate because of this this world. Absolutely, yeah. When you're not home <clears throat> on a regular basis, even if it's not the regular basis, you, you know it's uh, travel's limited, but you're still traveling for work. You, mm -hmm. you have to make sure that you take the time for her or mm -hmm. him, you know, which whichever. Yeah whichever spouse you have, but, uh, you have to, you have to make sure that they know that they are priority in your life to make, uh, to make this work. It's just, there's just no way around it. It, it doesn't work without that. Sure. And, and, you know, <clears throat> that goes into part of what we're building together. The, the training platform, I, I, I'm diving so hard into that communication piece, which is exactly what I'm talking about here. You have to communicate. Yeah, it has to be across sideways, up, down, diagonally. It, there can't be any lack of communication. And, mm -hmm. You know, if I'm withholding information from her, she knows it without me even telling her. That, I mean, she knows when I'm withholding information. Uh, and and a lot. Of, I don't think a lot of people give our spouses that credit that they already know. Mm -hmm. They already know that there's something there we're not talking about. And you might as well just go ahead and tell them. Kids too. Kids, Absolutely. Kids are really intuitive. They're, they're, they're way smarter than you think. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a good, a good, uh, tangent there. You were a CDI for a while uh, and you are not a CDI anymore. So at what point did you leave Holt to go do what, what, no, I think it was, was it co-op enterprises mm -hmm. after, right after that? Mm -hmm. So how did that come about? Well, there was a short stint of machine sales. Uh, four years. Really? So, yeah. So 2011 to 2016, I actually was in Forgot machine sales. Yeah. So uh, got a, a opportunity to to move into what I thought I wanted to do, which was sell sell machines. And uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny it. It was great. Um, the money's fantastic, and mm -hmm. and you know, the relationship that I built there with uh, with customers is fantastic. I mean, I still have a lot of those guys are still personal friends. Uh, I still reach out to them. They reach out to me, happy birthday or, you know, holidays and stuff like that. And, and some of them still call every once in a while just to, just to check in. So really built some good relationships there in that sales side. And so what happened was, uh, uh, how I transitioned into, uh, uh, leaving Holt for call up enterprises was, uh, actually through LinkedIn. I had, uh, uh, 
uh, a guy that I did a lot of training for. He was a, a plant manager for uh, uh, TXI, which is now uh, bought by Martin Marietta. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he uh, uh, he had moved into uh, area foreman or area production manager position. And he reached out on LinkedIn and we had started conversating and, and he, uh, he asked me to, you know, what would it take to get you to come do your training? Uh, he said, I, I've tried other people. I've tried, uh, going through the dealers. I've tried the, the manufacturers and I'm just not getting the results. And, and, uh, so he, he asked what it, what would it take? And I, I kind of blew him off. Cause I mean, I'm selling tractors. I'm having a good time. I'm, you know, taking customers to go hunt in the King Ranch. Uh, I got to do that a couple times. That was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he he was persistent about it. And finally, after like the third time he asked me, I just threw a number. Two minutes later, he writes, do it. It's like, I went too low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I've, I've been there uh, once, yeah. or <laughs> once or a hundred times. Once or a hundred times. Yeah. So I started... Uh, I started looking into building, uh, getting the company started and went out and got the appropriate insurances because it's good grief. It's expensive. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing in the quarry mines, it's, it's a higher level of insurance than just a typical contractor has to do. Um, and, uh, he, you know, the beautiful thing is he was over, uh, uh, operation that was offshore. So he was over uh, operation in the Bahamas. And then in Nova Scotia, Canada. Mm. And so I started uh, traveling uh, out of the country to go do some training and um, Holt, uh, Holt didn't like it too much. So mm. imagine that. Yeah. They said it was conflict of interest. I'm like, well, I'm not even in the country. So yeah. I don't really understand <laughs> that. <laughs> but whatever. And uh, they said, well, it's our customer. It's like, well, it's really not because, again, they're Nova Scotia, Canada and yeah. they're in the Bahamas. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, they'd already, uh, they'd already transitioned into this, uh, online sales platform. And so everything we did was online. We didn't have to be in the office. I was still selling tractors, hmm. you know, I, it was quite funny. Uh, the, the week before I parted with Holt, I was, uh, in Nova Scotia and sold six backhoes, you know, <laughs> six four twenties and in, in a package deal. And I, I brought that up and I'm like, I'm still selling. I mean, I don't understand the situation here. It's not like I'm leaving these guys out in the dust, but uh, it's all right. It was for the best. So, so you started the business while you were still doing sales. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it just, it got to a point where they didn't like that and you wanted to just keep training rather than Correct. sell tractors. Yeah. I mean, my passion was in training. I, I enjoy training people. Um, I enjoy the, the people thing. I, uh, and what I mean by that is I like knowing that, let's say I come out and and I'm working with you on your skid steer. I like mm-hmm. knowing that I'm making you better. Um, and to be more specific, I like I like to know that everything that I'm doing is going to help you be a better person, a better operator, and give you more chances to advance. Right now, not you personally. You own the machine. It's your company. Yeah. But you understand what I'm saying. So I'm very passionate about that. It's 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 what drives me. You know, it's why uh, I think it's part of the reason why I feel like I'm good at what I do is because I want to see you do better. And when I go on site, a lot of times I actually have to lead with that because people are scared that I'm the hatchet man, you know? mm-hmm. which can be the case. If you're terrible and you're beating on the machine, your boss is going to know what I'm going to go tell him. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, 99.9% of the time, I, I just want to make sure that you're better at operating that machine than when I got there, you know, and, and, I tell stories of guys that had been running machines for 20 years and started working with them and, and started working on their, their, their applications and started, started to teach them how, if you move the machine just a little bit this way, or, you know, on a motor grader, for example, if you lean the wheels and you articulate it just a hair, and then you move your drawbar just a little bit, what that's going to do for you, for your advantage. And, and then to watch those people start taking those principles and applying them to the machine. And then next thing you know, you come back and they're not running the machine no more because now they've proven more worth. And so now they became a foreman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy that's, uh, he's actually uh, uh, my manager now at Call of Wild Coal that went through my grader training and became a foreman and then became a supervisor 
uh, and then became uh, assistant mine manager. And now he's running the whole show at a, at a mine in northeast Northwest Colorado. And, yeah, it's phenomenal, right? I mean, and, and I don't want to take credit for it. It's not me, right? But he he took some principles and applied them, and then it's like, oh wow, that really kind of opened his eyes. And then he started applying other leadership principles to mm -hmm. his life as he as he moved into things, and, and it opened his eyes to see that if he was open to criticism and open to people helping him, he could move up. And that's uh, you know, if you want to move up, provide more value to the company. 100%. Just be more valuable. You'll get noticed pretty damn quick. 100% every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a simple concept, but it's very hard to get people to see that, that big picture. Well, and yeah, and there's, and there's entitlement there too. They mm -hmm. think they deserve it or whatever it is. Uh, how do you approach training? Cause there's some big egos in this industry and there's some guys that they've been doing it for 20 years and they know how to do it. How do you, how do you approach training to get people to respond to it well uh so you got to take it on a personal level uh you have to get to know the guy mm. and so that's uh uh without good without trying to get too specific you try to you try to get personal with him to see how he ticks um you know i'm thankful that i was i was able to go through some of those courses to, in my self-development to uh to be able to learn how people communicate and then, and then how do they need to receive their communications to be able to help. But, uh, most of the time it's, it's literally, I go watch and I'll take some notes, but I really don't watch for the first 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. And the reason for that is because as soon as I show up, you get nervous, someone's watching you. Mm. And so I let that person get settled back in and then after I feel like they've settled in and they get back to work and how they would typically be if I wasn't there, then now I'm going to really, that's when I start taking my notes and I let them run for a little while. And the only time I would stop them in the interim there is if there was something just completely unsafe or they're uh, really abusive on the machine or something of that nature. But other than that, I'm going to let them run and I'm going to take those notes and then, and then I'm going to stop them. Uh, at, when I get to a good point where I have a, a decent amount of notes that we can work off of, mm -hmm. but you, you got to build people up. And so you talk about the good, you're doing all of these things really good. And you have to understand as a trainer that when you build them up, then you can't beat them down with the negative side of it or the critique. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's more, uh, you know, you're doing this really good, Aaron. And if you, if you just adjusted your bucket, tilt just this little bit, you might be a couple seconds faster in your cycle time. And if you're a couple seconds faster in your cycle time, that means you're going to get six more trucks in an hour. Sure. And so you have to run some of that math to let them start seeing, you know, if I did this, what is the end result? And so you, you have to be able to do some of that math in your head and, uh, pretty quickly about their cycle times and, and understand you know, if you're, if you change just this little thing, it's going to help you get this much more done. Just add that to what you're currently doing. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Eric and I, we went to Edwards and it was a similar thing. It's, we're not going to sit here and tell people what they're doing is wrong. Funny enough to it's exact same, it's not the exact same, but it's the same with, with photographs. Mm -hmm. You show up on a site to take photographs. Everybody's all nervous and they stop doing what they were doing just before you get there. Right. You're like, I don't want you to stop doing what you're doing. I right. want you to do what you do. I want to see the real. Yeah. And so you, uh, you, you kind of point a camera at them a little bit and you're taking pictures, but you're not really taking pictures. Mm -hmm. You're letting them get used to someone pointing a camera at them. And after a little bit, not, not that they get totally used to it, but they start to go back to what they were doing and you're like, oh, okay, perfect. And this you can is, see that. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It, yeah. it doesn't take very long. It makes a huge difference though. Hmm. Um, so you're, you're training with co-op enterprises, you're mm -hmm. traveling all over the country doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, you call me three and a half years ago, three and a half years ago. And I go out to see you in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. First time I've been to Wisconsin, we go to a frac sand mine yes. and see you training. I'm doing a motor grader class. Motor grader class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go out to the frac sand mine. I take pictures of the 374 out there too. Mm-hmm see you training on a blade out there. And that's when we initially met and started talking about, Hey, maybe there's a future opportunity here. Right. 
Yeah. So we, you know, when, when you came out, so I, I called you cause I had a website that I'd built off of Google for free, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, <laughs> it's junk. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a computer guy and I, it's not like I can go take video and pictures of me doing training. I can't hold a GoPro out here like yeah. this and, yeah. you know, photograph what I'm doing. And, and so I, I needed that help. I needed, I needed to be able to tell my story. And I think it actually came after a, a podcast that you had done about telling your story and about how you need to tell your story to, mm -hmm. to uh, put yourself out there. I was like, well, shit, I, I can't, you know, and it's my company's me, myself and I, so it's not like I can, I can, I can hire, I can bring, you know, Joe Blow out of the office because Joe Blow doesn't exist. It's, it's me. Sure. So, so, uh, yeah, I just reached out to you and, and, uh, asked you if you could come up and you, you agreed and, uh, built my website. I think it was just you and Dan and, uh, maybe, maybe Angel was the, the company, but I know you didn't build it, but you sent it off to get built. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it still exists today. It's the one that's yeah. still up. So, yeah. uh, yeah. And, and then, um, just kind of help me, uh, help me with the website. And we just, we started talking then about, about doing videos and putting them online and building an online library to access, uh, training, you know? So we, had, we had talked about that for, uh, over three years before the next time that you, that you called last August and said, Hey, we're ready. We're ready to start capturing this stuff. Are you? And I'm like, yes. Yeah. It took a while. It took a while to get there. Um, because yeah, when I met you, it was really just me and mm -hmm. Dan was helping out on the side. I don't think Angel and Chell existed yet. See, I don't. I don't think Dan. Dan was still at HCSS. I, he wasn't. He was. He was elsewhere because he uh, left right you. after I left. I but you. he was. He worked for two other companies before yeah. he came to Buildwood. So I he remember was the, still over there, but he was moonlighting for me. I remember the first time I talked to him, he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't an employee. No, 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 no. But there's no way I would have pulled that website off without him. That's why I know he was around because <laughs> yeah. zero chance I would have accomplished that right. <laughs> if it weren't for Dan. Um, so we, we call you, you come over and, uh, what have you been working on for the past six months? Oh man, we're, we, so we started, uh, with doing machine walk around inspections, uh, in October, we started filming, uh, to try to start, uh, uh, capturing this library. And so we had, uh, nine machines, uh, out in Phoenix at, uh, Blunch Yard mm -hmm. in, went through and built uh, walk around inspections. Now we, we didn't capture all the machines that we're, we're going to get more walk arounds. And that's, that's part of our, uh, that's part of our plans here in the near future is to go, go try to capture a few more of those plus everything else that we're doing. But we decided that uh, we needed to take a step back from, from the machines. We needed to start back at the basic mm -hmm. because we talk a lot about, the new generation coming in or the people coming into this industry that have no, no idea what to expect. And so, um, what we did is we decided that we wanted to start at the bare bones, the guy coming in that was working at subway or McDonald's yesterday, he's coming to you today as a laborer. What does he need to know and understand to be successful? How does he go about this job? What is some of the terminology that he needs to know and understand? to be able to, to start very quickly and be able to uh, understand everything that you're doing. Because as a foreman or supervisor, you, you don't have the time to give them that information. Yeah. And so what happens today is you hire a guy and you just throw him to the wolves and it's trial by fire and he's following someone around for three weeks, doesn't know shit from Cheyenne and he's, you know, he's dragging his shovel around because he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to look. And so we're trying to bridge that gap. We're trying to build something uh, let me rephrase. We are building something mm -hmm. that is going to give him some knowledge, uh, some uh, some useful knowledge right out of the gate to where he can look on his phone. He can watch these videos and can go, oh, that's what he was saying. Mm -hmm. Now I understand it. Yeah. And then he can go apply it very, very quickly. And then his learning curve isn't weeks to understand his job. It's hours or, you know maybe a day, yeah. maybe two days. Well, in this next generation too, they're, they're used to consuming. I'm used to consuming information online and right. learning online. Right. So it, it, it makes it a hell of a lot more effective because you're meeting the next generation where they are. 
But our problem was, okay, great. We have the ability to go create the videos and build this platform and distribute it to the industry. But we need people who have done this stuff right. and who know how to train and have the industry expertise and have the clout because I don't have the clout. I mean, <laughs> I go out there and start doing equipment <laughs> training. Are you kidding me? So we needed, we need to be fun to watch. Yeah. I'll give it my best. I'll give it my best shot. We're going to have you, you saw we're going to have you on the skid steer. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What not to do, yeah. uh, how to, how to grease half your machine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we, we needed expertise. We needed, you know, especially someone to guide us who has done this for a very long time and who has trained people in the industry, not only has operated because great an operator, you know, how to having run, you knowing how to run equipment. That's, that's great. That's a, a valuable skill set, but that's completely different than training someone. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And there's not, uh, uh, let's, let's break that down even further. I mean, there's a lot of people that are trying to train that don't, they don't understand mm the intricacies that need to happen to be successful training about how you have to communicate with them, how you, you have to build them up. You can't, you can't knock people down and, and your, your tones and your patience level is crucial, right? It's, it's so crucial to, to be successful in training. And, and, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that are trying to train and they do, they do a decent job. Uh, they're giving some knowledge or giving some experience and, and whatnot, but it's, it's a, it takes a special guy and there's, there's a, a, a small handful of them that, uh, that are able to do all, to tick all these boxes where not only can they run the machine, but they can run it effectively. They can jump in and, and go, it may take them a little bit to knock some rust off and get into the high production level, but it, it won't take them long. And then B, be able to watch somebody and be able to find, okay, it's that little piece mm-hmm. that you're missing and then be able to communicate it. Mm-hmm. So the, those four boxes are huge, right? And, and, and it's being able to, to find that little piece, right? Everybody can see the big, the bigger pieces. You're, you're missing this, this huge piece you're missing, but it's that little, you know, if you adjust your bucket just a little bit this way or this way, or if you move your blade angle just a little bit, those are the hard things to see. And that's, that's where the, it takes a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of knowledge of the machine itself and hours and hours of you physically running it yourself to understand exactly what that position does for you yeah. to be able to then explain it. Well, but that's, and that's, what's so exciting about what we're putting together is, is we need to scale training in this industry. We need to do it more effectively. We need to develop new tools Correct. to, to just, scale it across the whole industry. And this is that it, it, it will allow me as an operator laborer to see, Oh, okay. That's actually a good idea. Mm-hmm. I should try that out because I I'm doing that wrong. Absolutely. So even if my foreman is not a great teacher, I still have a tool to learn from and I can take what my foreman says. I can take this tool. I can combine those with field experience and I can be a lot more effective. And then my foreman wins because as a foreman, you want effective people, you 100%. want capable people. Yes. That's the point. Because yes. then you become more productive and profitable. And then if you want to become a superintendent, now your odds of becoming a superintendent are way more, way higher if you're an effective oh, and, foreman. And, and we're building a, a, a course for that to, to jump to that stage. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a huge piece. Let's, uh, so we started with the bare basic as a laborer and then, and, what happens next? Mm-hmm. So you're a laborer, then what? You know, once you get through that piece, and let's say they move you to to now you're you're moving into a grade checker. There's a there's a big difference in that job, yeah, right. And then let's say you move from there to the foreman. Well, there's so many pieces of being a foreman or a supervisor that they don't get explained to you. Trust me, I know. Mm-hmm. I, I've been there, right? And several different positions within management that nobody explains the extra stress and the extra uh, the extra job duties that you now have plus everything else. Right. And so that's where, that's where this training is going to come into play is, is as that supervisor, you're now a supervisor, but you know, I, I, I bring a new guy on now I got to train him. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got all these new duties that I'm also doing. Where's that time come from? Yeah. Yeah. And so for- it, it helps bridge that gap for sure. Well, and for you, it's, you only have so much time and so many mm-hmm. days on the road. So you can, 
I mean, you can, you can stay on the road and you're still on the road training, which mm-hmm. I think is super valuable, but this is a way to scale what you're doing absolutely across the board. But that's, that's the thing too, is you're still training, still training. So you're Sun, still Sunday, night, I'm, Sunday night, I'm, I'm doing night shift. Really? Yeah. On that, uh, in Chico. Yeah. Yeah. In Chico. So, I mean, Sunday night through Thursday night. It, it's it's night shift next week. Hmm. Yay me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's that's brutal, man. That's brutal. It's hard to switch. When but, you're uh in a pro- in a production machine like that, do you ride along with them? Yes and no. Yeah. I do both. Uh cuz so you can't see everything from the cab that mm-hmm. you need to see. Mm-hmm. Uh so there is time spent outside, you know, sitting in your vehicle or whatever far, you know, far enough back where you're out of the way. But then, uh, yeah, I, I get in with them. Absolutely. And sometimes I move them to the buddy seat okay. and I run. Oh, really? Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Especially if it's, you know, trying to explain it time and time and time again. It's sometimes they need to sit in the buddy seat and watch, especially when you're starting to, when you're talking about truck angles and how to get the trucks backed in mm-hmm. at the correct angle and, the, and how you need to work your face for them. Sometimes they just need to see it. And you can explain it till you're blue in the face, but sit them in that buddy seat and you can run it. And that's, that shows them, that shows them a, that it is faster. B it's smoother on the machine and on you as a, as an operator. And then you're turning trucks faster. And Mm -hmm. so all those above are, are win, win, wins. It's pretty advantageous to be better at running equipment. And there's, there's some guys that, okay, great. You can load a truck fast, but your cut looks like a bomb went off Oh yeah. or you're not getting consistent numbers or you're beating the hell out of the machine while you do it. I've, you can tell when an operator is, is particularly skilled and it's those, it's the little movements. Mm -hmm. It's the little things that really, really add up to that bigger picture. Yeah. And when you, I mean, it's easy to see if, uh, you do a shift change and the next guy comes in and he can just go straight to work and he doesn't have to fix mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is you get one shift that'll a dive bomb. I'll call it the, the floor or whatever, whatever it is they're doing. And it takes, you know, four or five hours for the next guy to clean it up to where he can. Uh, meanwhile, he's still having to try to hit the production numbers, yeah. but he's, you know, he's still, he's having to clean up your mess and it's like, nah, come on now. Mm-hmm. You you need to you need to grasp what you're doing to everybody else and what it's actually it's handcuffing the next guy and he could be doing instead of 2,100 tons an hour he could be doing close to that 3,000 number or, or uh, 2,700 whatever whatever that number is if he didn't have to clean up your mess and fix your problem that you created on the floor for him so it's uh you know it's a huge piece to get the whole team working together uh, and consistency is the key the consistent loads consistent counts consistent cycle times you know if uh, i think that's probably bigger than getting somebody down to hitting the that 30 to 35 second mark once in a while if they're at 50 seconds if i can get them to 45 but they're doing it every time Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm okay with that yeah now let's let's work on a little bit more let's get them down to that 40 number and then let's work on them a little bit more and get them down but the key is that i want it every pass i don't want it to be well i can hit it on the first bucket but then the next bucket we're back to 50 50 seconds because that just blows everything out of the water and then the next thing that happens now we got trucks backing up and we've got mm-hmm. all these other other things that happen and so it's it's seeing that big picture and, and getting consistency across the board is where the production numbers start skyrocketing yeah where you're leaving a rough floor and your tires are getting chewed up yeah. unnecessarily mm-hmm. and, yeah I, I, I can, my, uh, if, if I'm in an excavator, my floor is like plus or minus three feet or so. <laughs> oh, damn. We got to work with you, son. <laughs> it's, it's a little rough. Okay. It's, it's a little rough. Yeah. But I can load the truck. Yeah. Most of the time. I, I can't wait to work with you a little bit on the machine. It's going to be fun. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally open. Yeah. yeah. I'm totally open. Yeah. I'd, 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 I'd love that. Um, I, I, I got in with a guy getting to 1615 in September. Well, I've got in with a guy that has three of them here in town. Well, you've never said anything. <laughs> <laughs> I could just say something. 
I'll, I'll, I'll show up anytime. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, why don't you think companies invest all that much in training? Oh, oh, because you clearly understand how, like, you are not a very big cost in the grand scheme of things. No, I'm pretty much free. It is a rounding error. Yeah. In majority of the operations you're training in. I mean, it might be uh, an upfront cost. Mm-hmm. It, it, even uh, even a construction company or or a contractor, right? Uh, they they see they see uh, uh, my my bid to come in for a week, and and they'll they'll think I just can't afford that. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to spend that money. I just I don't have it. But what they don't understand is what they're going to get on the backside of that. I'm free. It doesn't cost any. I mean, so it, why, why, why do you think they think it's too expensive if it's that obvious? I mean, the training to me is pretty damn clear, but it, they're, they're very, very, very rarely do you actually see training in the industry. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I've been, so I've been on my own since 2016 mm-hmm. and I've been to two contractors. That's it. That's Every, everything else is, is in the mines and quarries because they understand it. They understand the, if you want production, you're going to train your people. And they also have it budgeted, right? Mm-hmm. So they do have a budget to do training because they have to physically do it because MSHA states you're going to train your people. Yeah. But um, what I get from owners uh, when I'm trying to talk with them is, well, uh, why would I go spend this money? He's going to leave for mm-hmm. for 25 cents. Yeah. But that's a mindset thing because I promise – I, I try to make this point and it's very, it's, I promise this is the way it is. If I'm the owner and I show interest in you, that also equates to loyalty. When you show interest that you want to help somebody better themselves, it's not just bettering the company, right? So I, I really work on a team mentality when I'm, when I'm on site, uh, getting everybody to work cohesively together building that bond, building uh, the team mentality, because that's, that's actually more of the bigger picture than working with one individual and getting one guy doing really well. Mm-hmm. The whole team has to come up. The whole team has to, has to grasp the bigger picture. And when you, when you start getting, uh, getting that mentality start to come together and, and you build that camaraderie with each other and that, that teamwork that, that, you know, uh, these guys start having each other's backs and they start, they start working for each other, not against each other. The, the, the head butting almost comes to an end out in the field when you start building this teamwork. Um, but the, the owners don't see that they see, well, I got this, this huge cost to bring you in and this guy's going to leave me for, for a nickel. So why would I invest in him? It's like, well, why wouldn't you? That's the question I ask them. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you invest in your people? Because the companies that do, because I'm not the only trainer out there, right? I mean, there's other other people out there doing this. And the ones that have it right, they don't have a people problem. Uh, you talk to a Hoopa. couple of them. Hoopa. Yeah. They don't have a people problem. Mm-mm. Why? Spend a lot of money on training. Do they pay, pay their people more? Probably not. Yeah, it's market, probably it's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the same rate as it is down the street. But mm-hmm. you know, they're they might have a little bit of a toner uh, of a turnover, but it's because they give a crap and they show their people they and it's not that the contractors don't give a crap because I don't I, I don't want to come across that way that they don't, but when when they actually show them, hey, I want you to be better, regardless of what you do with it afterwards, I want you to be better. That breeds loyalty. That breeds uh, that trust from that operator to the management team and the ownership, uh, the leadership team of that company that, hey, these guys care. They they want things to be better out here in the field. They want, you know, they're recognizing that we have a problem less we're working on fixing it. And so when you start showing your people that love, that care, man, they'll put their head through a wall for you. I mean, you don't have to ask them. They're just doing it. Well, it's a big mindset shift as a contractor too. It's a, it's not a, it's not an intentional thing, but traditional employers are very entitled because they've always had people coming to their door, knocking on the door. Hey, can I come to work here? 
That doesn't happen anymore. Mm-mm. People have way more options than they've ever had before, which could play to your benefit or detriment. If you keep assuming that, well, I'm just a great place to work, so people are going to come knock on my door. That's not how it works. You have to go put yourself out there and prove to people why they should come to work for you. It's a total, a total 180. We've been able to do it quickly because we haven't had decades of baggage mm-hmm. and decades of doing it the other way to unwind. But that's where contractors are at. It's, it's just always worked. We haven't had to think about it. We haven't had to train. And we're making a lot of money. We've grown our business. Yeah. So I don't need to change. But the companies that you know, besides Hoopa, that, that put that money and that effort into their people in doing that training, they actually have a waiting list of people probably coming, wanting to work for them. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's just the way it is. And where everybody else is struggling to find people, they yeah. they have a surplus. They're like, I can't hire this many people because we don't have the work for them. Well, and the funniest thing too is they're the most profitable companies I know. Go figure. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so the whole, yeah, it, 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 it's just funny how that works. Yeah, they're, they're the most profitable. Yeah. That's how you do it. That's, that is where profitability is going to come from into the future. Okay, yeah, GPS, cool. Uh, you know, Estimating yeah. software, cool. Telematics, cool. Okay, cool. All of that is helpful. All of that is necessary to remain competitive, sure. But the real opportunity is people. Build the team. That's it. Build, build the team, build the network, build the camaraderie, and it fixes so many issues. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. So yeah. people people are going to be seeing a lot of you pretty soon here. They are going to see a whole lot of this face. Yeah, you're, you're going to be big time. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be big time. I don't know about the all big time piece, but. Uh, I don't know. Let's go where we want it to go. There'll be a lot of people watching you daily. More people watching you than me. I know when, uh, well, that's just because of just sheer volume, but. <laughs> I know, I know it's, it's nice to, uh, to be able to walk through the, the trade show that like I did this last week and not be noticed. Uh, whereas you took two steps and stopped and took two steps and stuff that, that, uh, yeah. it's like, man, I just want to see the tractors. I, I, well, I, I made the mistake of, <laughs> I, I made the mistake. I was a little early, like 45 minutes early. You yeah. guys were there. And I was like, oh, I'll just wait outside the, the show and get, I get a little bit of work done. Did you ever get in? <laughs> did you ever even get in? Uh, yes, but yeah, it took a little bit, but it, it's, I, I just think it's funny. It yeah. just kind of cracks me up. It's cool. I mean, people do want to know who you are. I mean, you, you, you've done a lot for, for the industry and a lot for opening up the, the conversations to happen. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool to, to meet Aaron. I guess I mean, so. It, it, no, it is. It's, it's cool. Yeah. I was, I was excited to meet you the first time. I mean, shoot, I hadn't met you and you showed up and I'm doing a training class and I'm like, Hey, this, this is the guy. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I was a scrub, man. I was a total scrub. It's still cool though. Those guys knew who you were. Yeah. So Uh, that's a funny thing. A lot lot of people know what we're doing, who we are, but they won't, they won't tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty chill about it. It's good. Yeah. All right. Well, Mr. J, thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate it's been fun. It. Yeah. Appreciate you coming down. I mean, I guess you're here anyway all the time. Well, I, not all the time, but mm-hmm. I try to get in here at least once a month. We'll do some We'll do some training one of these days. Yeah. I'd like that. It's going to be fun. Cool. Make, right, you, everybody. make you to where you can actually run your machine. That'd be sweet. Yeah. That'd be super cool. Yeah. yeah give me some tips and tricks. Love to. I got a great place to run it. Where's nowadays. that? Um, some guy, Cody, he has a, a big YouTube page, Whistling Diesel. Yeah, oh, you've seen his stuff. Yeah, 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 I've seen his stuff. He he has a, a nice piece of land outside of town, and he's like, yeah, come on down anytime. Sweet. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of dirt to move out there. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Well, uh, thanks for listening, and that was uh, Mr. Jake Hall.